Turning Point Coaching and Consulting presents Kairos Conversations, Connecting with Quality, the podcast. Kairos is Greek for the right time, the right season, and the right opportunity. This podcast features healthcare quality professionals who share their journeys, their advice, their struggles, how they made that transition into a new and exciting role. My heart's desire is that you find this podcast to be inspirational to you as you make your own journey. Don't forget to share this podcast with your colleagues and friends and rate us on whichever podcast platform you listen to. Thank you for being here. Thanks for joining in today. This episode is going to be a little bit different because instead of sharing the journeys of professionals who have pivoted into healthcare quality, today I'm going to be having a candid conversation about our healthcare system, its challenges and struggles and steps we can take to make it better for our patients, but also for our frontline colleagues. On this bonus episode, I am super, super excited to be talking to my next guest, Amy Story. Her journey and her lived experiences have really inspired me, and I'm super excited for you to hear her journey and her story as well. So today I am here with Amy Story, and um, this episode is going to be a little bit different than our other episodes, but I am super, super excited to talk to Amy today because her story just resonates with me so much, and I love her perspective, I love her heart, and I love her approach to to healthcare and how we can make the system safer. So I'm going to allow um, Amy to introduce herself, and then we'll start the conversation. Thank you for being here, Amy. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. So I'm Amy Story. Um, I, first and foremost, I'm a mother of two, a daughter and a son who are feisty and sweet and all the things. Professionally, I am a physician assistant by training and I've been a PA for, gosh, 11 years now. Uh, the first seven of those in direct patient care. And I've, I've since kind of pivoted more into the world of startups and kind of wearing all of the hats. And I'm sure we might get into that um, in a little bit. I uh, am married. I live in Arizona. So we're still currently uh, in the over the 100 degree mark. So finding ways to keep cool. And yeah, it's a little bit about me. Awesome. So I want to start from the beginning. How did you get into physician assistant? How did you know that that's what you wanted to do? And how did you start that process at the beginning? Yeah, sure. So, you know, interestingly, I grew up in a really small town, small high school, and I I had no idea upon graduation what a physician assistant was. Most of my experience in high school and where I was really actually planning to go with my professional, you know, the start of my professional career was actually in theater, which is obviously very different than healthcare. And so when I graduated high school, I um, was really passionate about theater. I entered a theater program. And, you know, it's a really interesting story. So during my first year of college, I, and I've talked about this a 
lot. So this is nothing that I'm I'm sharing for the first time, but I struggled a lot with uh, anorexia nervosa, the eating disorder. And uh, I had struggled with that throughout my high school experience. I've been hospitalized several times and had gotten better, but college, you know, is a really hard experience for a lot of people. And so I ended up relapsing and having to, to withdraw from school and, and go back to treatment. And so it was really during that time when I was kind of figuring out my life, uh, I had gotten better. I was, was working some jobs, I had always been kind of interested in, in just science in general, and certainly had excelled at that in, in high school as well. And I started taking some local classes at, at my community college while at the same time was working in a healthcare system. And I ended up working for three PAs, um, directly supporting them. And that's actually how I got to understand what a PA was um, in the kind of realm of the healthcare system. And they, you know, got to see what they did, how they were integral parts of the healthcare system, really supported the physicians and, and got to see patients and, and make treatment decisions. And so kind of opened up my my own world to what this this career was. And it was great because it was almost like an internship that I was kind of getting paid to do because I was working there. And so uh, eventually had taken enough science courses that uh, I ended up enrolling in a physician assistant program and, and, and then became one. And so, yeah, it was a really interesting experience. Um, I would say, you know, always motivated, you know, even though I started, you know, my journey uh, in theater, which again is, is different, <laughs> creative though, always have been motivated by helping and serving people. Um, that's been kind of my whole experience growing up. I have a, a brother with Down syndrome and autism and Unlike most uh, people with Down syndrome, he he's nonverbal, so he requires one-on-one -on -one assistance with everything. And and really, my my entire you know life has really been shaped by this caregiving care aspect. And so that was really also a motivating factor for me to figure out, you know, what are my gifts? How can I best use them also in a way where I was continually growing and learning? Um, and so, yeah, I kind of arrived to the PA profession in a very different way. <laughs> yeah. So are you still doing, are you still practicing as a physician assistant now? So I'm not currently, I am still credentialed. So I maintain my um, certification through the NCCPA. I had didn't live in Arizona um, until about two years ago. And so since mm -hmm. that transition point, um, I ended up giving myself some time to kind of figure out what I wanted to do with that piece. I think you know, for, for PAs, I think we're in, and I don't know if you want to get into kind of the, the, the journey of my pivot. I, I do. That's where I'm going next. <laughs> yeah. So I've been a PA for about 11 years and the first seven of those were direct patient care. Um, my, my background is predominantly in gastroenterology and, and mental health. Uh, and I've worked in a variety of settings. So inpatient, outpatient, private practice. I lived in Buffalo, New York at the time as well. And this is a very interesting place. Buffalo in the inner city is actually a very poverty stricken city. And it's also um, surrounded by a lot of rural areas. So it was really interesting seeing access at all levels, right? Um, and it was a really, yeah, really interesting experience. So for those seven years, they were they were good. But I, of course, I think like many, was approaching burnout for sure. I think that, you know, unfortunately, I think for PAs in particular, I think for anyone in healthcare, but certainly for PAs, we get into this label of what's called being a revenue generator. Um, and that was actually a label that was used to describe me <laughs> from, from the business. Someone said that to you? 
Yeah, like it would be the revenue generators um, and, and kind of how they are doing what, you know, what is their, how much money they're bringing into the practice. And I thought that was really dehumanizing. And I would hear these things, you know, here and there throughout my experience. And it was really troubling to me. But where I'm going with that is, you know, I think that PAs tend to sometimes be the workhorse. Um, they get more and more added, you know, seeing more and more patients with less and less support. And, and I'm sure, you know, physicians feel that as well. But I think that was my experience as I was year after year um, as a PA. It was really hard to keep up with that from, you know, just a sustainability standpoint. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the other thing that I had experienced is, and, and this may be changing now for PAs, but there's not a lot of growth and learning opportunities, uh, career progression in particular opportunities for PAs. Again, this may be changing now. There is a terminal degree that PAs often are, are going on to get. But when you compare to NPs, when you compare to RNs, PAs really don't have a lot of weight in leadership. There's really kind of one of two paths you go if you want to continue to grow. Three, actually. One is being a better PA, which is, of course, always (laughs) something we want to be doing. We're continuous learners by nature. Two is hospital administration, which there really isn't a large representation of PAs. And three, it's um, academia. And some go on to pharma. And, you know, there I wasn't really interested in kind of any, of course, being about a PA, yes, but I really wasn't interested in any of those other avenues. And I just knew at the seven-year mark that I had asked myself, you know, do I see myself doing this same thing in 10 years? <laughs> and, and the answer was no. And the answer was no. And, you know, I really had to grapple with that. Because I think what happened was, and I think like most of us, we go into healthcare with this desire as part of our beings to care and to serve. But what I was really feeling in those seven years was this pull between caring for patients yet serving the system. And I just couldn't, I couldn't reconcile with if I stayed in the system, how could I continue to care? In fact, I felt like over time, I was really just kind of helping people less. And that was not, you know, my intention. I think the last thing was I had recently had my son. And so I was kind of navigating the, you know, first kind of navigating motherhood, uh, which is certainly a challenge, certainly, you know, really sleep deprived and just really feeling the effects of not the burden of motherhood, but just all that comes with it. You know, my husband was frequently traveling for work and I, the the shame, I think culture sometimes that medicine puts on workers in general to continue to show up, even when we mm-hmm. are not showing up for ourselves. And, and so really it was the culmination of all these factors that led me to this kind of path of, okay, well, if I don't see myself doing this in 10 years, what can I do now knowing that I have this clinical skill set. And so it really took me on this journey. I think like many of us and many people reach out to me and I'm sure you too, Brandy, how do I start? What do I do? Where do I go? How do I look for? And, you know, at the time, um, none of my PA colleagues were even, I think they were thinking about it. They just didn't think there was an option. And so it was a really kind of lonely journey um, at that time to figure out, what are my gifts? What can I, how can I use them? Like, what does that look like? And so I'll pause there in case you wanted to interject, but I'm happy to go on. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I love that you said that because I also find that other healthcare professionals, allied healthcare professionals want to do something different, but they don't really know what that looks like. And now there's more resources out there and available, but it's like, like you, when I started this journey, 
it, it was kind of lonely. I didn't know anyone else who was doing it. There wasn't, you know, courses and resources to, to do a non-clinical or non-medical route. And yeah, I mean, when people get to that point of burnout or right before burnout, it's like, okay, what do I do now? And how do I still serve the world when I committed to myself that I was going to do this thing, right? I was going to be a physician assistant. I was going to be a physical therapist. And now I'm changing my mind. But, you know, there's some shame that comes with that because I'm changing my mind. Yeah. And absolutely. what does that mean for my integrity? What does that mean for the money that I spent, you know? Yeah, I certainly grappled with all of those things. Um, and I think sometimes I still struggle with it a little bit. And I, I think that is an unfortunate testament to how much weight we put in our professional identities, mm-hmm. not who we are, who we are is who we are, you know, professional part of that is, is part of who we are, but it's not who we are. And so I really had to do the the deep work of decoupling, de-identifying who I was as that professional. Um, but yeah, certainly, you know, struggled with that. And there's still some times where, where I do. Yeah. It's been, you know, an interesting process to work through. I think the other piece too is, you know, a lot of people reach out to me and want to want to get to the action. But I think where where we do ourselves a disservice is is going back upstream and asking ourselves, what is prompting me to want to make this change? Instead of just going to the action step of how I make this change, like why, right? And what is my motivating factor? And what is in my day-to-day right now driving me? Um, what gives me energy and what doesn't give me energy? And I think if you don't ask yourselves those questions, I think the danger is when you start to go on to this other journey of looking for something different, you can, if you haven't done the work to understand what is driving you and how you might be able to, to potentially change some of those things today that maybe are not necessarily directly from work, but maybe something else, a behavior or whatever, then potentially you can, you can really trade one dysfunctional system for another. And so it's really important, I think, to do that discovery before you start that action phase. Um, I 100% agree. You said it perfectly because it's almost like you don't want to run from something. Yes. You want to run to something. You want to run to a purpose. I mean, we all, we were all created for purpose. Mm-hmm. And like you said, really taking the time and it does take time. It's, it's really deep, intentional work, but it's so worth it to figure out, like you said, what energizes me? What, what do I like about my role? What do I not like about it? What, what am I good at? What fuels me? And mm-hmm. then moving to the next step versus just what's the action? What's the, what's the thing I can do to get out? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And it's, sometimes it's hard going through that process because it's, you know, sometimes you uncover things that like, ouch, yeah, (laughs) makes you uncomfortable or makes you, you know, question a lot of things. But I think in, in my, my own life, not only my professional life, but just the way that I approach my life is, you know, on, on the other side of discomfort is growth. And and really the only way to it is through it. And so sometimes it takes that unraveling of what we've constructed as this professional identity to kind of figure out, okay, I can do something. I can still use the skills that I have. Um, but maybe it looks a little bit different and, and, you know, how, how can I, how can I figure that out? So yeah, it's been, it's been a journey. (laughs) I'm writing that down. The only way to it is through it. That is like, they used to say that's tweetable, but now let's say that's postable. (laughs) It's through it. 
my friend, are you listening to this podcast wondering how you can start your own journey into healthcare quality? Or maybe you've already started, but you're hitting some roadblocks and getting stuck at the application process. Well, my friend, I've got a free resource for you. After you finish listening to this episode, head on over to my website and grab the ebook, Top Three Mistakes Clinicians Make When Transitioning into a Non-Clinical Role. The link will be in the show notes section. Now, enjoy the rest of the episode. So what do you see or why do you think our healthcare system is broken? Oh, yeah, man, there's uh, there's a lot. You know, I think we talk a lot about, you know, system problems. And I do think there's a lot of just overall system problems. Right. But unfortunately, get blamed on a person Um, Mm -hmm. that doesn't help anyone. You know, I think from from an overall just like societal social system impact i think we unfortunately spend a lot of time focusing on the treatment instead of going upstream and understanding what caused it in the first place and mm-hmm. what that ends up leading toward is i think unfortunately overutilization we've got patients now with chronic illness and now you know they're being admitted you know frequently and that just drives up costs and you know maybe doesn't even affect their their outcome of care i think that it's misaligned incentives for sure um i think unfortunately it's a very profit driven industry and so what ends up happening is we trade you know profits for patients for safety for people the healthcare professionals it's a very profit you know driven industry and that never i think tends to lend well to sustainability i think that you know there's unfortunately right there's a ton of increasing burnout we aren't taking care of the people who care for people and so how can we realistically think that our system is going to maintain itself and be sustainable when the people in it can't even sustain them all their own selves um, because of, you know, just increasing the amounts of patients that they have to see or, um, you know, not not getting the breaks that they need or, un, you know, unsafe patient ratios or or not dealing or with their own traumas that exist in the day to day that can certainly make up healthcare. Um, I think that we we need healing in healthcare, both from the people who need care and, and, the, and the people who care for people. And we're not creating those spaces. Uh, to really help support and, and, and actually ask like, what, what does it actually look like? And so we just go through our day to day and think like miraculously, this system is going to heal itself. And that's, that's not the case. I mean, I could talk for days. I think there's, I think there's, there's certainly a lot. I would also just add, you know, the silos that we continue to put ourselves in. I think both from a patient care standpoint, you know, we're, we're a siloed specialist um, system by I think design, right? We have primary care providers, but then we have our specialists. And so Mm -hmm. fragmentation of care you know, overall, is it probably good for treating a patient holistically? We really just focus on a system at a time and yet we're whole human beings. And so, you know, how, how can we, how can we fix a whole human being when we only focus on, on one part? So, yeah, I think those are my, my initial thoughts, but I, there's, there's so many things. (laughs) So how do we create those spaces? And um, before you answer that, something you said just really stuck out to me. You know, we fragment care to have these specialties, which helps because if you're really good at one thing, you can do it well because you've repeated it, right? Improvement by repetition. Mm -hmm. Um, And at the same time, you know, this care group is focusing on the knee as an example, just 
only the knee and not looking to see, well, how is this knee problem affecting the ankle or the back or the neurological system or their mental health or, you know, all of this, all of this other stuff. And I think that as a healthcare system, we need more clinical navigators Mm -hmm. to help bring all of these different segments together for the benefit of the patient and for the benefit of the caregivers, right? Because you need someone to tie it all together so that one part is talking to the other part. Mm -hmm. Would you agree with that? Or do you, how do we kind of move forward knowing that we do have these silos and these fragments? Yeah, no, absolutely. I 100% endorse care navigators because I think they can also be an advocate for the patient as well. And if you think about from a patient point of view, they're not going to know who to call or who to go to or where they need to get records from or this care over here, this care over here. That's an unfair expectation that we sometimes, you know, put on patients in their time of need when they are, you know, physically unwell, mentally unwell and really not capable, you know, of, of doing that. So I, I absolutely agree that, you know, some sort of navigation I think is, is pretty fundamental to how we can tie things. I think you described tying things together. I think there are some interesting models. So one of my first jobs outside of direct uh, patient care was actually working for a consulting firm. We were, we were employed by a local payer system. So a local health insurance system, we, our job was really to support primary care practices and especially the autonomous ones, because we wanted them to remain autonomous. It's, it's, you know, I think um, something that's really interesting is community care, like patients trust the care in their community, right? People who Mm -hmm. are in their community. Um, And so the whole goal is really to try to keep those primary care practices from not getting consolidated. Because I think, unfortunately, the care goes down um, and uh, we don't have differentiation there. And so our part of our job, our task was to help those practices really understand um, what this kind of value-based care world is. I think we still don't really have a definition fully for that. Um, still, still working on that, but, um, so understand what value-based care was, understand if you took on more risk, so high, higher risk patients who were high utilizers of the system. So really ill, you know, maybe three or more chronic conditions, if you could take them and manage them well, like how could that impact, um, the, the overall system of healthcare. And so our job was to come in as consultants, a kind of clinical team and really support them from an operational perspective. And so what we did was we implemented models to help support this, uh, you know, really trying to help keep patients at the center of what's called their medical home. Um, And so we did, we implemented programs like chronic care management. So how can we better manage these patients with chronic conditions? And the care manager was a huge part of that could somewhat be described as that a care navigator in some ways, but they were often RNs who could could do other things. And so they were really kind of that patient advocate coordinating care with all of the specialists, but trying to keep a lot of it at the at the primary, at the, at the patient-centered medical home. One of the other models we implemented was something called the collaborative care model. And this is really focused on behavioral health. And so it was really trying, given the, you know, the the shortage of, of mental health um, in, in this 
uh, country. The goal was really to try to maintain and treat much of the mental health disorders that were not necessarily complex, you know, at the level of the primary care. So it would be treated at the primary care, but the primary care had at their disposal a consulting psychiatrist that would be involved if they needed a little bit of an escalation of care, they needed to talk through the case. And so it was really trying again to de-silo some of that care, but still have the availability of the specialist um, kind of on demand as needed. And so I think there's certainly models that can help support the less fragmentation. I think the difficult part is, you know, providers are just burdened in their day-to-day. So how so, so much of the models take a huge administrative lift and burden. So how can we support them without adding so many administrative layers and burden to them? That I don't know, <laughs> but that that I think can certainly help some of the silos. That's very interesting. I'm glad you explained it that way because I hadn't really dived deep into the patient-centered medical home mm-hmm. model. So that was a very good explanation. This is causing me to even think right now. But yeah, it sounds like those are both good models. It's just like you said, adding one of the challenges with healthcare, as you know, and you mentioned this is, you know, when we go into healthcare, we want to help people. We're not going into healthcare because we want to do paperwork. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but paperwork is what we spend a lot of our time doing. Yes. And that is part of the reason I think is causing burnout because you have productivity and you're trying to meet that, but you have to document what you do because some insurer wants it or some regulatory body wants it, or it's going to help with the continuity of care, which that part is good, or, you know, it's going to come up in a lawsuit later, right? So you're documenting for not always for the care of the patient, but for the people who will be reading it later. Yes. Yeah, I think that's what we describe as defensive medicine, right? And so it really takes away, I unfortunately I think from the relationship piece that we we go into healthcare for. Um, I think that's when I describe about the pull of wanting to care for people but serving a system, it's it's exactly that, right? It's yeah, nobody wants to just spend their time on a screen filling up paperwork. They want to be really at the bedside, you know, sitting next to the patients, developing a plan of care that suits them. Um, I think sometimes too, and this is probably a controversial opinion, but we are so standardized. Um, and and certainly, you know, we follow an evidence-based medical model, um, but standardization doesn't always work. <laughs> Because people aren't standard. People are not textbooks. People are people. And I think sometimes we, out of our own survival of surviving burnout, the paperwork, and just getting through the next patient, sometimes I think we rely so much on standardization that we don't listen um, and we don't, and we invalidate patients' concerns. And, you know, we try to group them into the standard thing when sometimes there's, they're not, they're, they're outliers. Sometimes things don't make sense. Sometimes things take a little bit more time to, to figure out, to get to that kind of root cause, um, to get to that diagnosis. And I think that that's unfortunate. Yeah. It reminds me like you go into a store and you have an issue and they give you some robotic response and you're like, can you make an autonomous decision here? And they just are reading off of the script. Sometimes healthcare can feel like that, I'm sure, to patients, because I've been on the other side too. I've been a patient. Yeah. Right. And um, so I've been on the family side as a caregiver for a family member who's been in the hospital or who's needed the healthcare system. I've been a patient myself, advocating for myself when I had my son and 
I got an epidural and my blood pressure started to drop. And I'm like, something doesn't feel right. Y'all yeah. cannot leave me. <laughs> you gotta, so you gotta do something to recover because I feel myself drifting, right? So yeah. I had to do it for myself. And then being on the caregiver side as a therapist and now working in, you know, behind the scenes in healthcare quality, I think I've been on all sides. And being a patient is such a vulnerable place to be. Mm-hmm. And the healthcare system isn't making it easier yeah. for the patient because of all the things that you've already shared, right? Yeah, absolutely. I think experiences do matter, you know, certainly for patients. Also, when I think about experiences, I also I try to look at that holistically as well and thinking about all the stakeholders involved. And, you know, if the provider is not having a good experience, the patient definitely isn't either, right? And so how do we see that as a equal and both motivating each other. And yeah, I agree. I think the system has taken out some of that experience, a lot of that experience, and has just made it very poor and and anxiety provoking and also traumatizing in some ways too. That's a very, very interesting word, traumatizing. Why do you use that word specifically? Yeah, I think, I think what you described, right? Being a patient is very vulnerable and Mm -hmm. You know, when you enter a patient experience and you're really vulnerable and your vulnerabilities are ignored, invalidated, silenced, not believed, and that takes a toll, um, especially, you know, if it's a life or death, you know, situation, um, it takes a huge toll. And, you know, there's there's some people who, who don't recover from that. Right. And yeah, it is a strong word, but it's I think it's true. <laughs> yeah. And that's that's a good kind of segue into humans and healthcare. I would love for you to talk a little bit about that. Yeah. So yeah, it's my new venture. And to be really frank, I'm still kind of figuring out what exactly it is, but it's the idea that healthcare needs healing. And I think a lot of how we, what we've lost um, in healthcare is this idea of our shared humanity. You know, I think we talked about reasons for that, right? standardization where we see a standard and we don't see the patient. We talked about trauma. We talked about both for both patients and both and for healthcare professionals. Caregiving as well is is really hard. And I think sometimes a lot is thrust on the caregiver, not remembering that, hey, they're a human behind that um, role. And how do we show up for that human as well as them being a caregiver? And so this idea of bringing humanity back to humans in healthcare, and there's, you know, human could be patient, could be professional, could be caregiver, could be person who's working adjacent to healthcare. But this idea of, of bringing humanity back through sharing stories and lived experiences. Because I think sometimes when we hear someone's story, it could be different than our own. Most cases it will be. We never can walk in someone's shoes. But what we can identify with in that story is that shared emotion, right? Somebody was going through a really difficult time and it was really painful. And, you know, here's what they learned from it. You may not necessarily identify with the story, but you can identify with that emotion. And that's what is empathy. And that's what drives humanity. And I think that we lose so much of that in today's world. And so, yeah, part of it is my newsletter is sharing the stories and lived experiences of professionals and patients and caregivers to remind us of our connection and shared humanity. Um, I think it'll definitely grow. Um, So I'm 
really trying to be thoughtful about how can I create spaces, especially for healthcare professionals to have a space to be human, to show up with other professionals who get it and to be vulnerable and talk about the things that aren't going right to talk about, you know, they had a really bad patient experience and let me just kind of process through it. Or they lost a patient and they just want to be in a space to remember that patient and grief them. And this is not a replacement for therapy. I'm not a therapist. I'm not, not qualified to do that. But I think it is, I think there is something to be said about showing up in a space where people who get it to, to just process through and share your story. And so thinking about from a community standpoint, how I can create some of those spaces around grief and around, and I think even career. And, you know, we, we share this, we, we've gone this kind of other direction mm-hmm. or with our career. And, and I think there's a lot of people who are, are thinking about that, but I think as earlier in the conversation, we talked about how there can be shame with that and just normalizing that it's okay to change your mind. It's okay to take your time. And sometimes just being in a room of people who are exploring that and questioning that to know that it's like normal (laughs) to validate people, I think can be really life-giving. And so trying to create some spaces for that. Lots more ideas on what it's developing too, but that is what it exists today. I I just love your heart in that. And I want to circle back to something you said that stood out to me that that just really pulled at my heart because it's something I've thought about too, but creating spaces for people to really grieve the loss of a patient or a sticky situation with a patient because healthcare is hard and there's a lot of pressure on our frontline clinicians to always get it right. And I think about the nurse who codes a patient with an unsuccessful outcome. And then the next minute, they're off to their next patient, yeah. right? And they haven't had a chance to, obviously that's that's horrible for, for that family. And, you know, obviously there's a lot that we could go into there, but for the nurse, the physician, the respiratory therapist, the care provider who was there at the bedside doing everything they could to recover this patient. And yet in that next moment, they're expected to, somehow switch it off and continue with their day, Mm -hmm. right? And (laughs) that's just heart-wrenching because unfortunately that's the reality, but that's not sustainable. Yeah, exactly. And I think that when I get back to the word trauma, that's, that's also what I'm talking about. It's those little, maybe unsuspecting episodes and things that we don't honor that over time build up and, you know, become, I don't want to say problematic, but, but show up right in other areas. And I think that is why we're seeing people leave, why we're not, not the only reason, of course, but I think, you know, a large part of why we're seeing so much burnout is we're just not giving people the space to be human and to, to acknowledge that like, it's okay to be sad. Right. I think sometimes we're trained as medical professionals that I I was specifically taught, well, don't get too attached. Don't get too involved, but we're human beings at the end of the day. I I can't not feel something um, that would be dishonoring my own self of, you know, suppressing my own emotions. I mean, I think there's definitely strategies to be able to move through the situation, keeping, you know, your calm and composure. But I think at the end of that, there needs to be a debrief. There needs to be some type of, you know, check in, Hey, how are you dealing? How are you processing? And I, yeah, I want to create spaces and, 
just kind of see like what that can do for someone. And it doesn't have to be anything, you know, like I don't have to change someone's world, but I just want to show up for the people who are showing up for people. Cause I think if I had had that experience in my own journey, maybe, I don't know, maybe things would have, I wouldn't have felt so much pressure. And I felt a lot of shame as a healthcare professional in many ways, you know, like we're not always going to get it right. We're imperfect, but the system penalizes us so much when, when we, God forbid, make mistakes as a human. Um, and I'm sure there's a lot of other professionals, you know, that feel that way. Absolutely. Yeah. Because we don't want to put, create so much walls and boundaries that we turn off the humanness of, of our interaction with the patient, right? We become jaded. Yeah. And in order to protect our heart, protect our emotion, be able to go and see that next patient. Mm -hmm. Um, not like you said, using the word honor, not honoring the weight Mm -hmm. that we carry for our patients and for their outcomes, right? Even if a negative outcome had zero to do with us, um, as healthcare professionals, we can get blamed for that. Mm -hmm. Not just within our healthcare profession and colleagues, but from the world, from the community that we're trying to serve. Exactly. Um, Yeah, absolutely. There's, (laughs) it's a really interesting world sometimes to be a healthcare professional, especially we saw this during COVID, right? We were seen as heroes and then very quickly (laughs) not. And yeah, it's troubling. And then that's, you know, again, getting back to the mission of bringing humanity back. How do we do that, right? We, We do that through sharing stories, but we do that, I think, through our own selves and understanding how we also are showing up. I think so much of this world, and especially we see on social media now, is just rooted in reaction. But we can pause. And instead of react, we can we can actually pause and observe what's what we're feeling and then respond. And that's a completely different thing. And yet so much of what we see, in, you know, and just the reactions with, you know, really aggressive and aggressive and abusive patients too. Like we're just seeing so much reaction. So how do we, how do we redesign that? (laughs) How do we, uh, how do we pause um, and and show up and respond in a, in a just more healing way? Yeah, absolutely. So if you could, you know, create your own story, so to speak, what do you, what would be your vision of healthcare in the future? If healthcare, if our system, and I'm not even going to say fixed, But if we recreated the system, what do you envision? Yeah, definitely uh, one of equality, because I don't think I don't think it is today. I think we'd see more individualization without compromising outcomes. And I, I don't exactly know how to do that. But I think that, you know, we really when patients share something that's going on with them, we believe them the first time and we work as a thought partner with them to figure out what, what is going on? Um, instead of just dismissing, um, we really establish this idea of thought partnership between not only the patient, not only the healthcare professional, but the family, their social system, their community, um, so much more holistic approach. Um, and, you know, I think I wish money wasn't even in existence. I wish it didn't have any parts. I don't know how we get away with that, but you know, money is definitely a driver of things that are not sustainable. Um, and so it would not be high on my list of being part of the system. <laughs> yeah, I love, I just love your heart behind that. Okay, so how can my network support you and the work that you do? 
Yeah. Um, well, I would love for you to subscribe to my newsletter, Humans in Healthcare. Um, I write that on Beehive. So you can go to humansinhealthcare.beehive.com. And you can also follow me on LinkedIn. So Amy Story um, on LinkedIn, but also um, I have Humans in Healthcare as a, as a company page there as well. Um, I'm going to be experimenting with some community pilots. So the way to know about those is definitely subscribing to the newsletter because I'll give first... Uh, access to those to those who subscribe and then um my pages on social media i am working on a website um an official website as well humansandhealthcare.io is the landing page but right now it's just a link to the the newsletter but i will be sharing more on there soon um so yeah would would love that and i invite also your listeners if you have a story to share as your experience as a healthcare professional or a patient journey or a caregiving journey um, let me know. I'd love to feature you. Most of the newsletter is featuring those stories. Um, I also highlight clinician creators. So clinicians who are using their skills in creative ways to highlight, you know, that we are creative beings and we're more than our credentials and sharing resources for humans and healthcare. And so that could look like um, I've got an upcoming episode on taming the inner critic um, with Kate Cozart. And so just different resources to really support just the, the softer things of the side of being human that can really benefit us as healthcare professionals and patients and caregivers. Awesome. Well, I'll definitely put those links um, in the show notes so people can okay. click on them and um, access them easily. And, you know, I just want to pause and say to you, Amy, that I really really appreciate our conversation and the fact that we were able to have this discussion. And, you know, before we got started and, you know, started recording, you know, I said, you know, we're not going to have all the answers mm -hmm. to the healthcare system that we're working within within the United States. But having these conversations is important mm -hmm. because I think it's going to, my hope is that it gets people thinking and helps move the needle so that we can start moving in a different direction at whatever speed that looks like and bring awareness to the reality of what's really happening. Yeah, absolutely. I definitely agree. And I think, I think it's important to ask the questions so that we can really live our way into the answers. And I think that's how we get to the answers, right? And, but it starts with asking questions. It starts with being bold and challenging the status quo. It starts with asking the questions of our own selves and how our experiences relate, you know, to the the future that we want to, to build. And I think it also is about working with others um, and remembering that we are in this together, even though sometimes it does not feel that way, but we have so much power if we worked together. We have so much power if we stopped disparaging each other and dehumanizing each other. There's so much power in, in really collaborating and coming together, but it, it takes, it takes a lot to, to do that, but I think it's possible. Thank you so much for being here, Amy. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for listening to the show. It would mean a lot if you would share this episode with a friend or a colleague. I would be honored to encourage them in their journey too. 